Welcome to Concerning CAMS, brought to you by Education Pathways. I'm Kevin Connickney, your host. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Our topic today is finding committee facts. I have the pleasure to be here with attorney Steve Adamsik. Steve is a partner with the law firm of Goad Adamsik, DeBost and Cross. Welcome, Steve, to Concerning CAMS, and could you please start by telling us a bit about your background? Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been an attorney in Florida for about 12 years now, practicing almost uh, entirely in the area of community associations with condos and HOAs uh, in the Southwest Florida and the South Florida areas. Thank you. Well, as we get started today, what are some common mistakes that boards make when they find owners? That's a great question because we see a lot of mistakes. And the issue is is that when the owner doesn't pay the fine, you want to go collect the fine. That's when you find the mistakes and you want to maybe possibly have corrected them on the front end. So some of those mistakes really involve due process. In Florida, the court system is not too interested in whether or not the roof was actually dirty or the car was actually parked on the street. They create this finding procedure so you can handle some of the stuff in-house. But in order to give you that authority, they say you have to give them due process. And so how does that work? Uh, well, it's hard to tell because the rules of civil procedure don't apply. The rules of evidence don't apply. There's very little guidance in the statute or administrative code provisions about what is the minimum level of due process. And so when you try to take a shortcut, you find yourself asking whether or not that was a good idea in the event the owner doesn't pay and you're trying to then collect the fine. So one issue is the hearing, right? The statute says no fine can be levied without 14 days notice and opportunity for a hearing. That's interpreted two ways in Florida. There are some people who are interpreted to say that you have 14 days to request a hearing. And if the owner doesn't request the hearing, then it's automatically due and payable. Uh, That's aggressive, but it's great for some communities who can't get a finding committee together because they can't get volunteers to serve on that committee. It's not the most fun one to serve on by any means. The other interpretation is that you always have to give a hearing and you must give at least 14 days notice before the date, time, and location of the hearing itself. It's the due process of at least appropriate notice before the hearing. In our world, uh, we take the, the, the latter interpretation, which is that you should always have a hearing and give 14 days notice. Because in the event you just shortcut the system and levy the fine because they didn't request a hearing, and then you go to your lawyer and you say, hey, can you sue in small claims to collect this thing? And then the owner gets an attorney and they file a defense of lack of due process. Now you're facing potential to have to pay attorney's fees if you lose. There's egg on your face because this may have been a controversial issue. And now you have the disadvantage in litigation and you are stuck trying to redo the whole thing. And so doing it right the first time costs you nothing but time. And so that's one of my biggest recommendations to clients with fining is do it right the first time. Do it conservatively because you remove all those defenses because we're not going to get, like I said, in front of a judge and say, well, the roof was not that dirty. We're going to get in the front of the judge and the judge is going to say, did you give him a hearing or did you give her a hearing? Did you give her due process? Were they able to demonstrate why the fines shouldn't be imposed? So one of the biggest mistakes is trying to take the shortcut and I get why people want to do it. But if it's something that might end up in litigation, it's never worth it. Because the result is that you're going to be trying to defend yourself as to why you didn't give due process. Okay. Are there um, limits to what can be fined, and how does that work? There absolutely are. But it also depends whether you're in a condo or an HOA. In a condominium association, the statute provides that it's limited to $100 per day up to $1,000 maximum. And it also provides that a fine can never result in a lien. So your collection process is really the small claims world. 
in a homeowner's association, the statute provides that the fine cannot exceed $1,000 unless otherwise provided in the governing documents. And so some HOAs have documents that allow fines to go up to two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. And the statute provides that a lien, excuse me, a fine of $1,000 or more can result in a lien. So in a homeowner's association, you also have this hammer that you in your disposal where if they don't pay the big fine of $1,000 or more, you can go through your standard lien process as opposed to having to go the small claims route. And so it's actually a really helpful tool in a homeowner's association. If a lien's attached to the property, is there a time limit on how long they have to collect it? There is. And again, it depends on whether you're in a condominium or a homeowner's association. So just like a lien for assessments in a condominium, the lien technically expires after a year. It uh, doesn't mean you can't eventually get a good lien for it, but you have one year to actually foreclose on it. In a homeowner's association, that same one-year uh, timeline is not in the statute. So you have longer. But typically, when you're pursuing fines, it's because there's an active violation. There's usually contention. There's usually an adversarial relationship. And so most clients don't let it sit for too long because it's a hot topic. What are some other things that CAMS and association uh, boards should be thinking about with regard to fining? The other thing that I would recommend is look at your own documents, because just because the statute provides this minimum level of due process, and even though it's vague in the statute itself, we also know that in your own documents, you can self-impose more restrictions on yourself. So if your bylaws that you self-impose through contract say that you have to give 30 days notice, guess what? You got to give 30 days notice because the intention there is to provide more protection for the person being fined. And so if you've obligated yourself to give warning letters, if you've obligated yourself to give cure periods, if you've obligated yourself to give more than 14 days, you're going to find yourself with another defense in front of a judge when you go to collect it if you don't give those procedural due process steps. So the question is, how do we work with our documents as they read? And they may have been drafted under a prior statute. How do we read that together with the statute today? to make sure that we're following both the statutory minimum requirements and any self-imposed requirements, because they both could and likely would apply. Steve, are associations stuck with those declaration documents, or is it something they can work with a law firm to have amended? So amending documents is a very, very common thing to do. Um, Sometimes the documents will live and breathe and change when the statute changes. Other times your documents are going to be stuck in time, depending on certain language in the documents. And so we're frequently having discussions with clients. Well, your declaration or your bylaws or your rules say this, but the statute changed in a couple of years later. Now, which one applies? And it could be a complicated analysis. So amending the documents is something that frequently occurs. And as frequently occurs because statutes change and they want them to align better. Or they found through practice that this was not necessary. So what we're talking about with these self-imposed restrictions, if they're not required by the statute, why require them on yourself? You're only creating a problem or a mistake for you to make. You can still give those cure periods. You can still give those warning letters, but without the strict guidelines that you can only mess up. And so a lot of clients will go and amend their bylaws or their rules to remove those self-imposed requirements, not because they don't want to give owners opportunity to fix a problem before they find them, but because it's only something they can mess up and not having it they can still give all those extra steps and extra opportunities, but without the defense and litigation down the road, if you ever got to that point. Steve, if an association finds an owner, are those fines typically the same each time they receive a fine or are they progressive in nature and maybe increase 
incrementally with uh, each uh, successive violation? It's a good question as well. So there's a continuing violation and then there's start and stop violations. So a, a speeding violation is start and stop. They sped, they stopped the car. It could be a fine of $100. The car stops. There's other violations or continuing violations, such as uh, painting your house without approval or installing a fence without approval, or maybe no fences are allowed at all. And every day that the fence sits there is another day of a continuing violation. There's no start and stop. And so that's why you have this cap of $1,000 in condos and a potential cap in an HOA, because you might have the house sitting there in an unapproved paint color for 100 days but you might be capped at only 20 days of $100 a day or $2,000 of a fine to go pursue. So you certainly have a cap of $100 per violation, but there, for the continuing violations that don't start and stop, you have a self-imposed cap in an HOA and you have $1,000 in a condo. Is there a requirement that uh, the association notify the resident that they've made a mistake and painted their house a color that's not authorized before they fine, or how does that work? So like we were talking about earlier, the statute does not require cure windows. The statute would not require that you give someone an opportunity to fix the mistake. A violation's a violation. The first day, it's a violation. So the day they painted their house is the violation. And every day that it sits in that unapproved state is another violation for continuing violation. But um, even though you would have um, the situation where you didn't give an opportunity to cure, many clients will still provide opportunities to cure, to get it back to normal, to make the application, to make it an approved paint color uh, before they actually pursue the finding process. But the question is whether you self-impose this requirement to give a cure window in your documents, whether you're just doing it as a neighborly or a, uh, a due process type consideration. And so if it's not in your documents, you can still do it. You just don't have to do it unless it's in the documents because the statute wouldn't require you to do so. Have there been any recent changes in the law concerning how fines are handled? Uh, over the years, there's obviously been a bunch, but most recently, a couple years ago, there was a significant change. So before this recent statutory change, the general consensus for fining was the committee votes and then the board votes. So the idea was that the committee was able to uh, hear all the evidence and decide whether the fine should be imposed and the amount sometimes. And then they make a recommendation to the board to actually levy the fine. There are some cases that kind of support that. Most recently, the statute changed to provide that the role of the committee is merely to approve or disapprove the fine approved by the board. And so this literally indicates that it's flip-flopped. It literally indicates that first now you have to have the board vote, and then the committee reaffirms what the board said. It also takes away the discretion of the committee to increase or decrease a fine. So it's really become an up or down vote on whatever the board said. And so the first process now is some form of board action where the board determines a violation occurred, the dollars per day of the violation, and the number of days of violation. That results in a number and a figure. And then they forward that to the committee. That's where you give that 14 days notice and opportunity for a hearing letter to the committee where the owner is able to state why the fine approved by the board should or should not be approved. The committee then takes it up and they decide whether the board approved fine should be approved or not approved up or down. So it's a big change. Are there any rules about who can or should be on the committee that reviews the fines? 
Yeah, it's supposed to be impartial. So the statute goes to great length to say it shouldn't be a board member, an officer, uh, someone who lives with these people, who is married to these people, who is related to these people. It's supposed to be a very impartial committee. Um, And communities vary on how the practical implications of the committee appointments are because some committees will almost always uphold what the board said and other committees take a really impartial approach and they will actually strike down what the board said if they don't feel it's appropriate. As we wrap up this episode, do you have any final suggestions for associations or camps? I would say try to think into the future. Think, is this person litigious? Is this person likely to not pay the fine? Because although we can shortcut the procedures all the time and we might get away with it because the person just pays it, uh, ultimately, if you want to go collect on it, you're going to have to have a conversation with your lawyer. And hopefully those questions back to you are, show me all those notices, show me the minutes from the hearing, show me where you gave them an abundance of due process, because there is no bright line. There's no line that you can pass where you said, yeah, I gave enough because the statute provides so little. So think ahead. And if you think you have a situation where there's someone contentious, always err on the side of being conservative because it costs you nothing but time. And the alternative to rush it could have pretty significant financial and you know inter-community political complications and, and results. Steve, thank you for joining us today on Concerning Cams to walk us through finding committee facts. If listeners have additional questions, how can they best reach you or your associates at the law firm? Best way to reach us is through our website, which is gadclaw.com, which is Godi Adamzik DeBost Cross Law.com, or our phone number 239-331-5100. Thank you, Steve. We will be sure to include this contact information in the episode notes for the podcast.